I'd like to offer some reflections this evening on the <clears throat> on the fearless heart, what it means to embody love in action, to bring kindness and care into the world. <clears throat> One of the, I think, primary and significant features of the Buddha's teachings is his very clear acknowledgement and recognition of the fact of what he called dukkha, or what can translate as suffering, as things that are unsatisfactory, things that are difficult, challenging, or hard to bear, as one of my teachers translates it, and I really like that. There is in our life things that are hard to bear. There is in the world things that are hard to bear. We can call dukkha, <laughs> suffering. And there's something about acknowledging this that's really important, rather than denying it, or pretending somehow it shouldn't be that way. But acknowledging it's so. This acknowledgement allows us, gives us the ground and the framework from which to respond to it. And the path of practice, of dharma, of Buddhism, we could say, is very much concerned with and centrally oriented towards responding to this. <clears throat> and so the process of responding to, to suffering, to that which is hard to bear, we understand in, in the teachings as being the specific aspect of the caring, loving, kindly heart that is compassionate, that feels and cares about and responds to that which is difficult. And this again is a, this is a central element of the Dharma teachings to teach, to practice, to embody the Dharma, is in fact a compassionate practice, a response to suffering, to that which is hard to bear. And the foundations we've spoken about of, of ethics, of refraining from causing harm, and that we've cultivated of kindness, of friendliness, of caring and well-wishing, these are, in one way we could say, forms of very direct and in a certain way radical activism. For myself, when I think about what practice involves, it's very much an expression of the, the phrase that I encountered first as a teenager in my first sort of contact with political work, activist work. The phrase you may be familiar with, to think globally, act locally. To have a great vision for transformation of the world and yet to understand that what we can actually engage with is what is in front of us, what we're in contact with. And in terms of our meditation practice, the, the vision is for the transformation of suffering for all beings and through the vastness of this world and this universe. And acting locally, thinking globally and universally even, and acting locally is sometimes expressed in just our attending to the place in our heart where it's tight or it's closed or it just doesn't seem to be accessible and beginning to work with practices and forms and processes that allow that to begin to soften and open. 
And this practice of, of sitting quietly, engaging in inner practice, inner work, we can say, is also a form of courageous activism. It's not easy for us to face the inner challenges, the patterns that we encounter. And this process is one in which we are called to address both the fact of and the effects of of greed, of selfishness within ourselves, equally as in the world, of ill will and hatred within ourselves, equally as in the world, and of delusion and confusion that we arise, that we experience arising within ourselves, and equally we can see in the world. The harmful effects of these patterns, these qualities, these tendencies that arise in human beings is immense. We can see the effect of selfishness and ill will in the world and perhaps equally that of delusion too, of blindness. David Loy, the Buddhist teacher, writer and activist, he he once observed that we could, in looking into our world, we could see the, the whole corporate, consumer, materialist drive that's so central when so much of what happens is simply being the extension and expansion and idealization of greed and selfishness. That the the industries of war, of conflict, and the, the military structures built around them that consume so much of the resources of our world that this is hatred, ill will, expressed, and fear too, expressed in concrete terms, manifest in our world. And delusion, well, this is the media. This is the world of information, infotainment, infomercials. And when we get to infomercials, we know uh, this isn't information anymore. This is coercion and manipulation. And these things and the effects that they have in our world have roots in human beings, not different than ourselves. Not saying we're to blame for these, but human beings that we might conceive of as to blame for these things aren't so different than us in their basic inner condition and experience. And so the practice of metta, the quality itself that we're cultivating here, is directly involved with engaging that tendency towards selfishness. When we feel friendliness, kindliness, care towards others, we can't ignore them in just pursuing our own well-being. Selfishness is much less available to us as an option. Unfortunately so. When we cultivate a sense of caring, of friendliness, of kindliness, ill will, and the wish to harm or the disregard as to harm for others, to others, again, it begins to drop away. And the delusion of separation on which both of those are based equally begins to dissolve as we feel the resonance of our heart and the way we can touch and be touched by the life of another. That we can feel them so close to us sometimes, possibly even uncomfortably close, as someone mentioned today in the group, that the separation between ourselves, as we imagine and another as we believe as one thing and another, two different or separate from each other, begins to soften and dissolve. 
And this is, this is a form of, of radical activism, of engaging with the fundamental issues of our world, equally because they are the fundamental issues of our own lives, of our communities, and of our inner experience. And this isn't easy, as many of you have expressed and reported and spoken of in different ways. We find many things arising within us when we turn towards kindness, friendliness, care. It's not easy to embody loving relation or a sense of a loving or kindly or friendly attitude. And yet we have this capacity, we have this potential, and so we're called and invited and encouraged to develop, to cultivate, to allow this to grow, to become strong within us as a priority, as a central thing in our life. This will make a difference. How we experience the quality of our life and how we experience the world. Absolutely. And within that cultivating of loving, kindliness, of care, of friendliness, the very particular vibration that's needed and that's called for in response to that which is hard to bear, in response to suffering, has two kind of primary dimensions, we could say. And one is the, it's what in the, in the, in the tradition uh, the Buddha, the word the Buddha used was anukampa, the quality of resonance, the way that the heart trembles when we allow it to be in contact with suffering. Our own suffering or the suffering of others. There's a trembling, a tremulous, a vibration of tenderness that we can feel. That's actually quite beautiful, can be quite sweet, but can also be a little unsettling for us. And so we're not always able to allow that quality, that sensitivity, that openness that this requires to allow ourselves to be touched. By life. And together with this quality of resonance, of tenderness, of sensitivity too, of, of feeling with, that's the literal translation of compassion, feeling with, or suffering with even, we could say, that, under, that translation of passion, of feeling with the suffering or the difficulty of others. Then there's the quality of karuna that the Buddha spoke of, which is the, the, the response, the, the movement that comes naturally in the heart when we're in touch, when there's openness, when there's sensitivity. The natural wish we have to wish to, to make a difference, the wish to help, to respond. to protect, to heal, to transform suffering in the world. This is a natural response in our hearts. And we see it's not an easy thing. It's not an easy thing. But it's important. It's so important that we be willing to go there. And that very spirit of compassion, of caring about suffering is part of what gives us the courage to turn towards the difficult person or the difficult places in our practice as we were doing this afternoon. Noticing how, as we've said, the sometimes parts of ourselves or our very sense of ourself 
is that who we find difficult. Sometimes it's our very body and these elements of experience so close to us. We can find so difficult at times to open, to feel a sense of real kindliness and care towards them. And so to turn towards the difficult, to be willing to open our heart towards the difficult is also to be required, it seems, to be asked, to be called, to also open our heart to the suffering that is present in that relationship, in that experience, in that memory that's associated with what has happened or what is happening or what might happen that we have found difficult or painful or hard to bear. So those beings who may have hurt us or harmed us or those we care about, to allow ourselves to be in the presence of such beings with our open heart is not easy and yet important that we learn what that means to do that. Because to have our heart, we need to have our heart available to engage, to respond in a way that can really make a difference, that doesn't simply just perpetuate the patterns of insensitivity and disconnection, the patterns of aggression and selfishness that are so often what we have been hurt by. And it's not just, of course, those people who've impacted us directly or immediately in our world. It can be people who we're aware of, who represent something for us that we find really difficult. And Quite some conversation these days about the political situation in different countries. And I'm going to be teaching in America in a few weeks, well, a couple of weeks actually. And just very aware of going into such a polarized situation. And for some people, and we may find ourselves in different places here, but for some people, Hillary Clinton was like this most difficult person you could imagine. You know, some of the stories I saw, those people, they're not relating to this person like they could easily open their heart to this person. And for others, Donald Trump. Clearly, not someone one could open one's heart to, it seems, for many people. And I find myself in that latter category. But... Uh, you know, we all have our own place. My mother's in the former, and that's kind of interesting to me, but there we are. What do we do with a situation that we need to respond to? We feel the call to respond to suffering in our hearts, in our immediate situations, and equally in our world. What we notice arises is a tendency to judge, a tendency to react with hatred or aggression towards that which we perceive or see as harmful, dangerous or threatening. It's a very natural response, very kind of, in a way, we could say animal response, reptilian response, actually mammalian as well, to be honest. Goes, and in a sense, very human too. We can't set ourselves apart from all of that. But if we understand, if we see that it's actually the patterns and qualities of hatred or of ill will or of selfishness or of disconnectedness, that these are actually what is dangerous and these are replicated in our response to them. 
Do we see to follow that? That 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 which arises into the world is is something harmful, evokes in us a similar kind of pattern, and it might feel like it's justified in that case. But the interesting thing, as we were reflecting in one of the groups today, is that almost all of the most horrific and tragic things that have been enacted by human beings in this world have been done by people who thought they were doing it to get rid of something they regarded as bad or evil or horrible. That's why they were doing it. And we realize, oh, there's something that perpetuates itself about this. And it perpetuates itself in our hearts if we don't take care of them. Of course, it's only in our own hearts we can see the process directly. We can't see it in other people. So I certainly don't have that capacity. But if we trust that, in fact, other people are not so different than ourselves, and really they're not, what we see in our own hearts, we can recognize, oh, this is what happens for others too. That those who act and ourselves, when we act from greed and selfishness, from ill will or hatred, from a sense of disconnection or separation, they do so from a, a condition of tragic blindness and an entanglement in pain and suffering that is deep and terrible, but so painful that for so many people they are not actually in touch with it. And therefore act it out and act it out and act it out. And in the doing so, they cause harm in the world, as we ourselves also. So we can say, I too, if that is my condition, will do the same thing. So far as I'm lost or unconscious in, in fear of my own need or vulnerability of you know, places of selfishness or anger, then this is what I will do. And you, in fact, anyone will. We do. This is what happens. And in doing so, there's also a great harm that one does to oneself. That such that whenever anyone acts in these ways, there's a self-harming that happens too. Because it's profoundly painful to our heart to enact such patterns, to be caught in them and repeating them, therefore reinforcing and strengthening their grip in our heart. Whatever we repeat, whatever we enact, becomes stronger in our heart and our mind. And so here in the practice, we're practicing, repeating, enacting a simple orientation towards kindness, a bringing forth and evoking of the possibility of friendliness and attending in such a way that supports that possibility. And that actually over time strengthens this. But so far as we're unconscious and reacting or acting without awareness, without that understanding, there's a reinforcing of something that's deeply painful and really you know, if you're not sure if that makes a lot of sense to you, I really just invite you to check it out, what it feels like in your heart when you're feeling really sort of a sense of, um, of hatred or, or selfishness. A sense of, no, I want it for me and I don't care if someone else doesn't get any. Or, you know, I don't like that and I don't care if it's a human being, but I just want to push it away because it's annoying me or it's hurting me or it's scaring me. If we feel into here, it's really painful in those places. It's really painful to us. To see this in ourself, we can see this as true for others too. 
And so part of one's motivation to address the, the unskillful behaviour in the world is actually out of compassion for those people who are acting so. It's not just to protect the world, but to protect them too. There's a remarkable story of a, of a great master from China. Um, his name was Zhu Yun, which translates as empty cloud. And he lived in the, uh, the late 18th and into the early 19th, no, the late 19th and into the early 20th century in China. And he was a great practitioner in, in Chan Buddhism. And a great patriarch, very loved, very respected, but also seen by the then autocratic um, authorities as, as a real threat and a real danger to them. He lived to be 120 years old. He's a remarkable man. And when he was about 110, quite an old sort of guy, it would seem, a bunch of it would seem paid sort of assailants or assassins, came into his room at the behest, it seems, of the government or, or some authorities who were feeling threatened. He was like offering something that they felt threatening and the amount of devotion he inspired, they were very threatened by. And they beat him really to within less than inches of his life. And his, his followers came in, found him afterwards, and he was there just clinging to life, it seemed. And they looked at him, and his body, it seemed, was just completely broken. And they said, Master, you know, with a lot of love, they said, Master, we know you have great capacity in your heart and in your practice that you can survive this, but it looks like so much pain for you. We, we give you permission. You can go. You don't have to stay here for us. You can let yourself go out of compassion for yourself. You don't have to keep yourself alive here. And he responded, he said, very quietly, he said, yes, I do. He said, because I must and I will stay. I will live through this. I do not want those beings, those people who beat me, to have my death upon their conscience, upon their hearts. I don't want... I don't want them to have the karma of having killed me. And remarkable, it seems, attitude to take. A remarkable position to be able to see from, to understand. That one might wish to protect one's very assailants in that way. To understand that our heart this resonant capacity that we've been working with, this, this asks of us, this sensitivity. And heart, in the tradition, we don't separate. In the teachings of the Buddha, heart and mind aren't seen as separate. The, 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 the term the Buddha used is citta. And I think that perhaps the best translation or articulation of what that means, because it's sort of like heart-mind, that um, comes from one of my teachers, Ajahn Sachito, who he describes it as that which is affected and responds. So it's that sensitivity that can be touched, that can feel, that is sensitive, resonant, and that responds, that can react, but also can respond skillfully. 
And this is what we could call our heart. This, this capacity. And this is actually the condition of this heart is at the center of our concern, is at the center of our life. When we feel threatened, when we believe ourselves to be in danger, we need to look to see what's happening here. To lose contact with this is the, the risk we face when engaging with that which is difficult. Again, there's a, a wonderful story I, I've heard of an encounter between His Holiness the Dalai Lama and a monk who had, an elderly monk who had made the very dangerous journey through the Himalayan mountains in the winter to escape from the Chinese-occupied Tibet region that he had lived in. And His Holiness, having made the same journey of escape many years ago, often, um, when he's able, will meet the people who've made that journey. And, he, 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 this, and traveling in winter with very limited support, supplies, and in, in the risk that if seen by the, the, um, the guards, the border guards of the, the Chinese regime, that one would be shot in trying to cross through these areas. And he, he said, his holiness said to the elderly monk, he said, my good sir, I'm so glad that you've made it here. I'm so glad you came. Tell me, were you in your journey at any time in danger? And the old monk looked at him, he said, you know, the only time I was in danger was when my heart, in my heart I started to hate the Chinese government. And again, remarkable wisdom and understanding there. It's like, of course he was in danger. He could have frozen to death, he could have been shot, he could have starved, he could have got lost. You know, he might have met an abominable snowman. But no, that was not danger to him. The wisdom there to know actually to lose that capacity to resonate, to fall into hatred, is actually the greatest danger our heart faces. And so, in working with this territory and working with what's possible for us, in terms of compassion, we, we need to take care of our sensitivity. We need to take care of the vulnerable dimension of our experience not to disregard it or ride over it in some kind of false sort of selflessness and so we were working this afternoon with the, the fearless mudra this, this quality that can just embodied in the upright firm hand that can say no or stop or just hold a sense of a boundary or a protective space that can say if needed you know back off but that isn't aggressive, that's soft. That's soft. In that way. And we need to be able to find this place of, of strength and courage in the face of that which we feel threatened by. Loving kindness is not niceness. It's not always just a sort of a sweet, soft, yummy thing. Sometimes it has a fierce quality to it, a ferocious quality to it, in fact. Understanding that what one needs to protect against is aggression 
or abuse or violence or exploitation. And that one can can respond in that way without rejecting or condemning the individual or the person or the group through whom those forces are playing out. Understanding that the forces that move through us are not something that ultimately defines us or anyone else, but that we can learn to bring forth what is wholesome through us into this world, to respond actively. And one of the places where we need to do this in our practice, perhaps again and again for many of us, is when we experience that self-judging, self-critical tendency. We've spoken some about that. The way we can turn towards ourselves with some real harshness and the way it undermines us and disempowers us and devalues us if we give it authority. And sometimes what we really need to do is not just be with it or note it or name it or be aware of it. All of that's fine. But with this particular energy and force, which is an articulation and an embodiment of aggression and violence and sometimes of abuse or a a devaluing or a belittling that we have in some way or form been exposed to in our life and often when we're young and unable to protect ourselves. We need to protect ourselves against that. And the way that I find really helpful, really useful in many situations, it's to respond actively as we might do if we were to encounter a parent whose child has done something perhaps foolish or problematic in the supermarket and then the parent has lost it with them and they're yelling or screaming or criticizing them harshly or even physically wanting to strike them. And it may or may not be that we feel we could actually intervene, but I think many, certainly I, would have the wish to be able to say, actually, stop. That's not helpful. Sure, maybe your child shouldn't really have ripped open a packet of biscuits in the supermarket, but just having walked past 13,000 of them, it's probably not that surprising that they did. But nonetheless, what one would wish to say is, no, that's not helpful. Not, you're a bad person for yelling at your child, or your child's a bad child for, you know, whatever it's done. It's actually, it's not about that. It's about what can help here. And that sense of stop. No, that's not helpful. That's often the response we need to extend to the patterns of reactivity arising in our mind that judge, that attack, that criticize us. So there's something quite firm about that. It's like, no, that's not helpful. And it's a compassionate quality that we can see. And it's it's manifest if you go to a monastery or a, a temple in Asia or in the West too, and some often around the gate or at the wall at the door to the to the temple. There's these fierce creatures with teeth and claws and they don't look like they're doing loving kindness practice. <laughs> but in a way what they're saying is unwholesome, dangerous, threatening qualities are not welcome here. Saying no to harm to selfishness and that kind of fierce or fiery quality is something something actually very beautiful that we learn and that we need to learn and support in ourselves in our hearts and in our lives and of course the work we do with these inner patterns is a foundation for working skillfully with the patterns we see playing out in the world where we see one group attacking another or attacking you know, a group attacking a some individual. And we might want to say, 
don't do that. Or, you know, we might find ourselves wanting to engage and we're not quite sure how to do it. And sometimes it's just that something about wanting to say, stop. Not getting into judging or blaming or taking sides, but just stop. That call that comes from our hearts, stop. This is dangerous, this is harmful. Stop, it's not helpful. And the image that's sort of expressed in the tradition for this is the the parent, the mother or father standing at the door in which the door and in the room their child is sleeping. And the message is no one who wishes harm upon this child is coming through the door. And the mother and the father, this is just absolute, just no way is someone who wishes harm coming through that door. And a certain kind of sort of fierce but actually inspiring and beautiful courage in that situation that we can see in the natural world where the parent of an infant will lay down its life to protect the little one. And likewise, adults in our world. It's a little bit like that scene in The Lord of the Rings. I don't know if you do fantasy movies, but um, that's one that I like anyway, having grown up with those books. Um, and that scene in the, uh, in the, I think the first of the movies where the, um, the, the, the little team of people who are the good guys are basically, in, they're in the mines underground and then the big monster Balrog turns up and Gandalf with a staff on the little bridge stands there and just, you shall not pass. And I don't know if you got it in the movie, but there was like this moment of, bang, or that wasn't a very good clap, was it? It was a boof. You feel the power of you shall not pass. Not you're bad, or I don't like you, or I hate what you do, or what you stand for. All of that is in the realm of reactivity. It's actually, no, there's a response that just says stop. And we need to find ways to bring that forth in our inner practice and also in our world. For myself, I have in my own family story what for me is a very inspiring and touching sort of connection. My, my grandmother, who's, who's Bengali, so she's from Calcutta, India. She's turning 100 next year. Anyway, she was one of the women, the young women, who gathered together in large numbers with the, uh, in, the, in the sort of the time of the uprising against the British occupation, the Raj, the British occupation of India. And these young people stood in front of the armies of the British Empire, the most powerful in the world, and just said, no, we won't allow you to tell us what to do anymore. And that, that spirit inspired by Gandhi and others of just, no, peacefully but courageously and with power and commitment we will say no to that which is unjust, exploitative, harmful. And she's a very sweet old lady. She, still, she lives in Sweden these days but goes back to India um, most years for a little while, still quite well in herself, which is lovely. And I just have the sense of this little woman just sort of, well, she would have been just over really a young girl then and all these others and just, wow, how amazing that they were inspired to do that and to face down such 
an enemy that began by, of course, shooting them. But at a certain point quite soon, when you have people sitting there and they're not attacking you, those who were being told to shoot couldn't do it anymore. And they stopped. And that's when they'd lost. And we have that power within us, all of us. When we're willing to face the forces within that arise inside us and the forces around us and outside us, we have immense power. And it does need us to respond. It does call us to act in response to things we see in our world, in our communities, in our homes, in our hearts. We do need to find ways to respond. And that responding, interestingly, engages the energy that otherwise becomes lost in anxiety and fear. So much of what we find in our world can evoke from us fear and anxiety and distress. And understandably, because there are many things that would be of concern to someone who cared. There certainly are. We know that. And yet, left without If we don't find some avenue of response, of engagement, that energy entangles us in a struggle with the very energy itself and we tend to close down and shut down to try and control it. Or we find ourselves being distressed and destabilized by it because our system can't handle it, it can't process it. But if we find some way to act, to do something, it transforms it. It transforms it. And I I had a very strong experience of this um, some quite a few years ago now. In um, I think it was 2002 in, in Israel during the time of the Second Intifada, the uprising by the Palestinian people against the occupation that they're subjected to. An incredible amount of violence and fear in that country. Terrifying experiences of of both military invasion from the Israeli Defense Force into the Palestinian communities and the succession of of bombs being let off by the Palestinian militants in the community of the the Jewish people of Israel. And complete terror, frozenness. People almost starving because they wouldn't go to the supermarket to buy some food because it was so dangerous and scary it seemed and I've been teaching in Israel for quite some years at that time and they asked if I would come and lead a walk and the wish was to walk from from Tel Aviv or Jaffa in fact the sort of the uh, the, su- the Arab suburb on the edge of Tel Aviv to Jerusalem and it was to be a walk in silence for a week and just to make an expression of something that had to be said or done in a situation where people were so afraid. And it was really interesting, really shocking and scary to go in one sense. And half my family comes as Jewish and comes from, comes from there. So I have quite a connection to, to Israel as well as teaching there. And going and finding it like I was on a bus going to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv when a bomb went off in another bus going to Jerusalem and just hearing the news. And I think, well, it's not this bus because I'm in it and it's still here, but... A bus like this is blowing up right now, or just has. As we gathered together before leaving, before setting off, it seemed that there were four or five organisers thought, no one's going to come. 
It'd be crazy. I haven't publicised this throughout the community, inviting both Arab and Jewish members of the of the of the towns and of the culture to come. But no one will come and began. In fact, we began with about 30 people and we walked in silence, just wearing a white sash. No signs, no placards, nothing political. By the time we got to Tel Aviv, there was a hundred. And we'd visited many different communities where, including like some Palestinian villages, where we were welcomed with a great degree of appreciation, with some right-wing um, Israeli villages where they came to hang out around our campfire and brought their automatic weaponry with them. We went without any weapons, even though we were told we must have a police escort, we must have armed guards, but we, we turned them down. didn't seem it would be right. But what was interesting is that as we began walking in very soon, and we were completely exposed, like publicising, here's a whole bunch of people going to walk out in the open with no protection. You know, Isn't this a great place to call yourself a target? That's what we were being told. But what happened, as soon as we started walking, very soon after, really interesting, what people started describing was that the fear and the anxiety they were feeling started to drop away. They actually started to feel the sense of their connection, the sense of their care, the sense of just doing something, in a sense simple, in another way not so simple, just to stand up for what they cared about, just to say no to the cycles of violence. And it was something very, I was very, I felt very privileged to be, to be part of that and to be invited to, to come and lead the walk as a, as, a, as a Dharma teacher and someone who leads, who's been leading walking retreats in Israel for years at that point. And out of it came a, a movement to, of uh, Jewish and Palestinian, Arab and Muslim people going together into the communities that have been devastated by the bombs and by the military and speaking to the people and connecting and sharing and led by, a, by two men who'd both lost their sons, one to a terrorist bomb and the other to a military um, action from the Israeli Defence Force. And a sense of something just rippling out that continues to this day from that group of Dharma practitioners feeling we have to do something here. We have to do something, even if we're in the midst of such violence. And if we look into the world, we see, as well as some of the things that may be distressing and horrific, scary and unsettling to us, we also will see there are people. There are people in so many places, in so many ways, finding their feet, finding their ground, standing up and saying, actually, no whether it be a climate march in London, which I and I know some of you have been on, and the number of marches and other actions there, whether the group of Native American people supported by others who have stood up against the, the bringing of a pipeline into the Standing Rock community in, in Dakota, North Dakota. And that people stand up and find some way to make a difference. And we can do this. Sometimes where we're doing it is in the very simple and immediate sense of just what I can do right here with my heart. Sometimes that's where we're working and that's as important. 
And sometimes it's in going out into the world and saying with our friends, okay, we need to stand up for something here. We need to call out something here. We need to say stop to something that's harmful. And that's just as important as the inner work. They go together. They're both essential. And of course the truth of it is that we might not always see the results we would wish for. We don't always find that the outer conditions or even necessarily the inner conditions transform in the way we might have hoped. But it's really important to know and to trust and to understand that whenever we act in accordance with what is true, what is noble, what is honourable, what is in line with the depths of our understanding, of our depth of caring and our connection with life and each other, it does make a difference. It does make a difference. We can't do it all. We have to accept our limitation in that. We have to forgive ourselves for our limitation in that. But we can do what we can do. When I was first traveling in Asia, in India, I had the opportunity to visit one of the institutions run by the Order of Mother Teresa, I think the Sisters of Charity or Sisters of Mercy or something. I've forgotten now the name. But uh, it's, it's called Shishi Bhavan, which in, this is in Calcutta. It's the same trip where I met my grandmother. And um, I went to this place with a friend, and it was an orphanage essentially, and, and there the uh, incredible amount of poverty in India and in Calcutta, many, many young children and babies who, whose parents had either died or were just unable to feed them and keep them alive, end up in this place which takes them in. And when we came, we were told that as men, my friend and I, we were both men, we couldn't volunteer there on a long-term basis. Culturally, it just isn't allowed in, in, in that culture. You don't do that. And that's how it was. But we could visit for a couple of hours. And so we went in, and first of all, we met all these young boys um, who were very excited to meet some men and some young girls as well, but they were less excited because they got to see more women and that, and very lovely. And then we went into the room where the babies were, and it was a room the size of this hall, and it was full of cots packed close together, just room to move between them. And each of those cots were two babies. And in the room, there were about three, maybe four of the sisters of the order of Mother Teresa. And we could see they were moving very quickly. And some of them had little um, bottles with milk and food, and others had little bowls with water and sponges. And we could see they were moving, and they were feeding, and they were cleaning these babies. And as we came in, the babies looked up to us. And some of them started to reach up to us, and some of them started to pull themselves up on their cots. And immediately we got what was happening. The nuns who were looking after them had time to clean them and to feed them, but they didn't have time to spend with them, to hold them, to sit with them. And it was just immediately obvious to both of us. We knew. We were just youngsters, early 20s, but it was obvious. And so reached down, picked up a baby and just held it. And it's like, like a limpet going on. These little beings knew what they wanted. And we held them. Just hold it and says, ah, oh, how sweet, how lovely, 
And then there's a whole room full of these babies. So sort of peeling it off, putting this one down, picking up the next one. Oh, oh so, you know, we spent two hours in there. I had the thought as I was doing this, I could spend the rest of my life doing this. And there isn't another version of my life that would be more meaningful or fulfilling or beautiful than just doing this. And I think I was right. I think it's true. That would have been the case. I don't know. But that's what it felt like. But when the time was up, we had to go. We hadn't even got around all the babies. And it was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking. And yet there was also something about having done what we could do, what was given to us to do in that situation. When we do what we can, even if it seems only a little, even if it doesn't really resolve the whole situation, because sometimes it won't, nonetheless, that action, that movement, what it does is it brings us into alignment with the deepest truth of our life, of our interconnectedness, of the shared ground of our love and our care in life. And in doing that, in coming into that, even if the outer is still difficult and challenging, and of course these things will always be with us, it seems. But even then, there's something that happens because of our willingness to engage, to engage with the places in our own heart that struggle, that suffer, that are hard for us to bear, to engage with those places in the world, those conditions and situations that others are in. Not that we can fix or necessarily resolve them, although sometimes we have that capacity. And what a blessing, what a good fortune, how wonderful when we can really transform a situation for someone or for ourselves or for some beings. But that that movement of of living out of, of acting, of allowing our hearts deeper knowing that naturally comes forth when we're in touch, when we're open, when we're sensitive, when we have the courage to feel and the courage to act. There's a way in which it it connects us. And that connection and that resonance and the, the shared responsiveness that we have is our gift to the world. And it's equally the world's gift to us. It's life's gift to us. We need to share our concern. We need to speak with others. We need to find ways to act. And what we're doing here is part of that. Absolutely. As far as I'm concerned, this is radical action. And for some it may be all of what we need to do or all of what we're called to do. But for others, we'll feel the movement and the call to more than that, to other things also. Not because we're trying to help something, but because this is actually what our life calls us to. We're not separate from all of this. We're not separate from even those who we see as the perpetrators, as the foolish, as the exploitative, as the greedy, as the harmful or the hateful the privileged and the persecuted, the perpetrators and the victims. We are part of all of this. Our heart is not ultimately separate from all the hearts around us, all the life around us. And we care deeply about it. Of course we do. So finding ways to respond. And it may just be the simple 
arising in the heart of may you be free of pain, may you be free of suffering, which is the, the phrase that compassion might express in response to when we see the suffering of another or ourselves, that we would wish for the suffering to be ended, to be healed. This response expresses our connection, expresses the truth of our life, even if we're not always consciously in touch with it, we can come back to it. We can practice coming back to it again and again and again. And so much of practice is that willingness to just establish pathways that lead to the wholesome, that connect that which uplifts our lives. And to be able to do so, to find the fearlessness of heart that this calls, that this asks for, We ask, or we're invited, we, we, we need to be able to turn to that in the very depths of our hearts that is awake, that is free, that is... We sometimes say in this tradition, we talk about the Buddha nature, the awakened nature, something fundamental, primordial, unshakable, that we might not quite have an idea for, we don't need to have an idea for. The heart of this that we are is ultimately unshakable. It's not something that can be lost or destroyed. We can lose touch with. And the greatest harm to us is to live as if we're not in touch with the depth of our connection, the depth of our relationship to all of life, to live as if we are separate from that which is around us, as if we are untouched by that which is around us. This is a profoundly tragic condition to live in. But when we live as if we are in touch with, as if we are connected to, even if we don't always feel it, even if it's not always what our mind is telling us, but if we just choose to align our actions with this, align our intentions with this, we weave ourselves in to life. We feel ourselves into life. We live and breathe ourselves into life. More fully, more consciously, more deeply. And in that, we find ourselves held by it. We become the process of weaving ourselves in to the fabric which we are held by. And this is the, both the fruition of, but also the function of that caring that brings us back again and again to engage with our life, with our heart, and with our world. And so it's a worthy, it's a noble, it's a beautiful engagement that we are practicing here. worthy of honouring in ourselves and each other. And truly a blessing in this world. So let's just sit quietly for a few moments.
And so may we all in our practice here together and in our lives, may we find ways to act with courage for the protection, for the benefit, for the welfare of all beings, ourselves and each other, for the welfare of this world, this very life and existence itself. May compassion and kindness prevail for our own well-being and for the welfare of all beings, for the welfare of all of life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.